You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 233. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, Sanesan! And I like to make an announcement. Please do! <laughs> the thing is, uh, since uh, Jelena decided to, to leave the show, uh, we've had a bit of a shortage of presenters. But we will have that out occasionally by Annika. And uh, after the last episode, we decided to ask Annika if she would like to join us permanently. And what did you say, Annika? I said, yes, I will. Yes, very good. <laughs> Great. Otherwise, we would have to go to the backup plan as well. And that was to ask Francis if he wanted to join us. And I know he wants to, but... Uh, you mean the Pope? The Pope, yeah. Yeah, but Pontus Pokes, the Pope, would have been a bit awkward then. Well, I could... So like... Yeah, it could be more physical. I could have him here in the room with me and it would be... <laughs> yeah, we would definitely not consider doing a, a live video show then. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what poking the Pope would mean that way. Anyhow, we are very happy about you joining us, Annika. Yes, we are. I think you fit in this uh, little team very well. I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you will enjoy doing this with us week after week. So uh... I won't get weak. Oh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I feel we will have a new kind of humor <laughs> coming into the show here now. Well. With, with Annika. Great. Actually looking forward to that too. Yeah. I have all the dead jokes prepared. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can actually make them not considered je dead jokes anymore. So you cannot be a dad. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. I just call them Annika jokes and they will be Annika jokes. Wonderful. They have a much better sound to them. Yeah. So uh, bit by bit, we are changing the world here. With our humor. <laughs> with our humor, <laughs> if there's nothing else to do it with. No. Actually, you made a recommendation last week. Neowise, the comet. Mm. By the time we finished recording last week, <laughs> it was too late because the clouds were forming. And uh, a couple of days after that, I, I managed to actually go out and observe the comet. But to my huge disappointment, it has lost a lot of its brightness by then. Yeah. So now it's among the team of less bright celestial objects. And it's magnitude 8 at the moment. I don't know if you're familiar with our magnitude scale. I hear it mentioned all the time. I don't really know what it means. It's a logarithmic scale hmm. and uh, it doesn't have a, an actual unit of measurement, but it's a comparative kind of scale. That reminds me of earthquakes. Hmm? <laughs> oh, yeah. From the scale. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Richter scale. It doesn't doesn't have a unit to measure it with, but uh, it measures energy. This one measures brightness. And magnitude 8 is basically something that you can only see with the naked eye if you're in a very dark place. I mean, not... <laughs> So, literally, in a very dark place. Like after Andrew's colonoscopy. <laughs> <laughs> Come on! I already forgot that. Yeah. And I had high hopes for the for our listeners to forget it as well. <laughs> I won't let them forget it. <laughs> yeah, well. Anyway, it's approximately 2.5 times with each step the brightness of the, the celestial object. So, Oh, and it's the highest the number, the faintest it is. Oh. So when it goes to minus, that's when it really gets really bright. So the moon is around the minus 20, 20s usually uh, for, a, for a full moon. So it's, it's quite something. 
Anyhow, so if someone wants to look at it, they can still look at it. It's very beautiful if you look at it through a telescope or at least a binocular. Yeah, but also can find do it. it soon, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 because the brightness of it is declining very fast. Yeah, like we saw it last week, but uh, it wasn't super bright either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now we have to do it very soon or we have to wait 7,000 years. Yeah, which is also not a problem. So you can also do that. There's going to be another one coming very soon, I'm pretty sure. Well, I read that we only discovered this one in March, right? So yeah. could always be another one coming around. Could be. <laughs> yeah, we could right. easily have something that actually hits the Earth. <laughs> and then we have a deep impact situation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, we'll not go into predictions because we're not in that business. Wrong podcast for that. So yes. we, yeah, we're in the business of doing other things. We're happy if we can predict the past. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm. It's not prediction is necessary for the past, I think, right? <laughs> well, at least we can uh, correct our mistakes made in the past. Actually, right? science do work with predicting the past in a way because you come up with a theory or a, or a formula or something and you test it against the past and say, if we apply this to what was mm -hmm. known 100 years ago, could we have predicted this other event or whatever it doesn't have to be 100 years and ago. theories are, f are formulated based on uh, observations of the past as well yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. so the theory is only there because you you've had some observations and you predict the future and if the future doesn't come out as you expect then your theory is crap or at least it needs some adjustments <laughs> or you stick to it and you call it homeopathy oh yeah that's right or <laughs> anything that we usually talk about and in regards to like <laughs> learn from your mistakes i would also like to make a little correction to last episode Ooh. because last episode you remember the story i told you about the two hairdressers wearing masks and not infecting anybody else yeah mm -hmm. yeah it was a little i mean a little intro for the austria news and yeah i actually didn't really fact check that because it was only my intro and yeah, I have to say that this story actually happened in Missouri in May and not in Germany last week. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah, it was reported in our news like it did happen in Germany, but it didn't. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry for that. And I thank our listener, uh, Daniela, very much for her very understanding and kind feedback in that ah. regard. <laughs> but, but just to make sure that the story was correct, it was just the wrong time and place. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Story in itself was correct. So. All right. It was two hairdressers and stylists, and they didn't infect 139 of their customers. Mm. Yeah, it's a good, good track record. Yeah, it is. So it's still good to wear your masks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Please do. <laughs> the lesson still stands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to make an addition to uh, all these topics and uh, how cool science is and how they can improve on already existing methods and techniques as well. So you probably heard that uh, ESO the European Southern Observatory, has made yet another exciting discovery. And my only excuse for talking about this is that it has a European connection. <laughs> but you probably remember then when the publication of the very large telescope's missing star came out recently. Yeah, yeah. And we talked about that. This time, the same large telescope complex, it's uh, run by 16 European countries and located in the Atacama Desert down in uh, southern Chile, took a direct image of a young sun-like star orbited by two giant gas planets. 
Yeah. Which is just amazing. It was really amazing. I did not know that we had direct observations of uh, exoplanets. I thought it was all inferred from gravitational pulls and, and what's the other when it goes passes Usually through it, the, yeah, the star. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the brightness of the star. Brightness of the, uh, I did not know that we actually had photographs of uh, exoplanets. We do, and it's not the only one, actually. No, uh, no, but, no but, the, this was just because it was two in the same picture, right? They have two other photos of that kind, but those other stars are absolutely different from our sun. But this one... Uh, this is, is a sun-like star. It's a sun-like star, ah, okay. and it's at the beginning of its development. It's a very young star. It's a couple million years old only. That's the estimation. So it's more than four billion years younger than, than our, our sun. And uh, the, the photo was taken by this, uh, it's an adaptive optic system, and it's called Spectropolarimetric High Contrast Exoplanet Research. It's a fascinating piece of equipment, and it is capable of separating the light coming from the star and the reflection uh, of its light from the planets. And and that is the great technical achievement of That's it. That's amazing. So, as you said, it's uh, usually it's not the way that uh, exoplanets are being detected. They measure the, the changes in brightness of the star as, as the planets pass in front of it and try to separate beams coming from uh, around the star and try to detect movements based on the Doppler shift uh, of the light or occasionally the, the gravitational pull that is had of the planet can be detected. And then they usually calculate the, the planet's mass as well. They, then the change in the brightness of the image gives an idea of the size of the planet as well, which then leads an estimate to how dense it is and ergo whether it's rocky or made of gas. So all indirect ways of detecting exoplanets, but this baby called Sphere is capable of direct imaging of uh, these distant worlds. So well done. It's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, yet another fascinating step forward into understanding our universe. Yes. And it's done by a collaboration of European countries. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and just for the people of us, like me, who don't know what an exoplanet is, can you maybe explain it again? Ooh. Is it a planet that's outside of our solar system? Or wh why is it called exoplanet? Exoplanet is an outside of the, of the, of the solar system, yeah. So anything that orbits another sun, okay. another star, which is in a bit of a contrast with uh, exobiology, for example, because exobiology refers to everything that is outside of the Earth. Okay, yeah. But all planets are actually outside of the Earth, except Yeah, the Earth. so this is... But <laughs> the planets of the solar system are usually not, not referred to as exoplanets. Oh, they are yeah. referred to the wow. planets of the solar system. Right. Yeah. So with that elevated spirit, I suggest we launch our scheduled rocket of skepticism, Ooh. which is the European Skeptics Podcast, now complete with our new host, Annika. <laughs> yeah, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you, Annika, to tell us about someone or something that has relevance to this week in skepticism. This week, somebody very special celebrates her birthday mm. because Susan Blackmore was born on the 29th of July. And I did my research and I found out that she also has been on this podcast in 2017. She was. She was. <laughs> we have episode 88. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We have met her as well, in person as well. Yeah. Yeah. I met her too at the ESC, not to be confused with the European Song Contest. <laughs> <laughs> like we met. Yeah. Yeah, at the yeah. European Skeptics Congress, which is I the... made that mistake once. I went to the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> and then you were like, "Why are they singing so much?" <laughs> 
I once attended a skeptical event with Tim Minchin there. Oh, okay. So it was Tem London. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it overlaps a bit. <laughs> yeah, there are overlaps, yeah. But at this ESC in Rochlaw in 2018, I also met her and I listened to her talk about the new signs of out-of-body experiences, which mm-hmm. she researches and she's also a British writer, lecturer and, of course, skeptic and a professor. And she researches parapsychology, consciousness, and also contributes a lot to The Guardian, the Mm -hmm. newspaper. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was really funny because if you Google um, Susan Blackmore and ESP, you'll get very different results. (laughs) Because she has been on this podcast. She also talks about out-of-body experiences. (laughs) You mean extrasensory perception? Yeah. Uh, She she talks about both. She also talks about that too, yeah. Why ESP is interesting in that regard is is, uh, the extrasensory perception. Yeah, that was a uh, a bit funny because I didn't really think about that and I was like oh yeah I have to say podcast so <laughs> <laughs> yeah everybody who's interested should definitely check her out because she's a really fascinating person and happy birthday <laughs> happy birthday she's one of my favorite speakers because she has such an enthusiastic way of communicating all her research and she's full of energy and you will definitely not fall asleep during a a talk that she gives it's just fascinating it absolutely blows my your mind and um, i'm really looking forward to hearing her next anywhere yeah and to say something superficial i also really liked her hair in rochelle oh yes oh yeah (laughs) it's always very interesting colors Uh, (laughs) blue and red and pink and Whatever. Yeah, she likes a colored hair. Yeah, yeah. that's right. She's she's cool. <laughs> happy birthday, Susan. Yeah, happy birthday. happy birthday. I didn't say the year, though. <laughs> <laughs> very considerate. That's very thoughtful of you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Annika. That means that we are moving on to our next segment, which is when Pontus pokes the Pope. Well, actually... I will. I will. We will skip Pontus pokes the Pope today because the Pope hasn't been up to much this week. Lazy bastard. Yeah, lazy bastard. We. I mean the Pope, not you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> both of us maybe. But there's no need to to bash the Pope for for uh, just for the sake of it. He has done some things. He, he he appealed to everyone to be kind to older people in isolation, especially now during the pandemic. Uh, you know, call your grandparents, use video calls and or send them messages. As as long as you let them know that you think about them. So I think that's nice of him. I think all... It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I agree with that. Be kind to your elderly people. And, uh, and since Francis is one of them, uh, I will be kind to him and not poke him this week. Oh, very nice of you. It's very generous. I'm sure he will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> he might actually consider joining us. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Pontus. That means that we are moving on to discussing the news. All right. Let's get the most depressing things out of the other way. <laughs> I think it is clear as they by now that easing restrictions during the pandemic comes at a price. And leaders of all countries have to do everything in their power to provide citizens with the most accurate information and make all the precautions necessary. We obviously cannot stay in a lockdown situation for long unless we're prepared to completely ruin the global economy and ruin lots of lives in the process while we're actually out trying to save lives. This is why we tend to talk about related fake news, disinformation campaigns and all that to help our listeners be up to date with what's going on in Europe. 
Because we see the effect of people not being compliant with rules and recommendations. We see the numbers going up when people refuse to keep a physical distance and wear masks, just because they've been misled to think the situation is not that bad. If it isn't, it's only because we've done what we had to do. We stayed home, wore masks, regularly washed our hands and kept our distance. Globally, however, the last week has been the worst since the start of the pandemic in terms of newly reported cases, which is something that we don't really see when we are sitting in a European country that has been in lockdown for months. Because in that country, we won't see all that many cases. But globally, this is the case. The bug is spreading. 40 countries have reported an increase in single-day confirmed infections. A lot of them European countries, mm. where either the restrictions have been lifted or eased, growing disinformation campaigns make people refuse to comply, or what's worse, a combination of these two. Poland? Serbia, Bulgaria, Belgium, Spain, Austria, Germany and Romania are just a few where we've seen a surge of new cases over the last week. So there is much reason for concern, actually. And once and for all, those who say that this is nothing more but another flu-like disease should simply shut the fuck up. It's hard to know exactly how many people die of COVID as opposed to dying with it, but even the most optimistic estimates suggest that it's five to six times as deadly as the seasonal flu, which is quite significant, given the fact that the basic reproductive number that shows you how contagious it is can be as high as twice of that of influenza's. If you combine the two, if you're not protected somehow, it's twice as likely to infect you, and you're five to six times as likely to die of it. Mm. That's no flu. And this is based on recently published papers. And we're seeing the lingering long-term effects as well, which is quite a recent thing too, including respiratory problems that remain, circulatory system issues, and even neurological damage yeah. that are absolutely long-term effects. It is now also clear that we cannot count on obtaining immunity by going through the infection, as more and more studies suggest, some of them done in Sweden and Spain recently, that there is a massive and rapid decay of antibodies after having contracted the virus but showing mild or no symptoms. So that might prove a challenge for vaccine development as well. Vaccination is our best bet to achieve herd immunity, but only if the vaccine provides real protection against the disease. Yeah. And some anti-vaxxers are now campaigning with their fear of ADE. I don't know if, if that sounds familiar to you. It's called antibody-dependent enhancement. Something that makes it very difficult to make a vaccine against uh, things like dengue fever, for example. Because with the antibodies present in our body, a secondary infection with a different strain can lead to a more severe case of hemorrhagic fever. Right. So yeah. some people are afraid that this might happen with COVID-19 as well. But so far, this has not been detected in relation to SARS-CoV-2. And some researchers working in vaccine development have specifically mentioned that possible occurrences of ADE is something they closely monitor in the process. So I would not be very much worried about that. Uh, but there is another thing about vaccine development. The one that is probably in the most advanced stage is uh, the one done in Oxford. But they seem to struggle because of the decreasing community spreading in the country. So it's a, it's a funny situation that because they now 
are coming out, at least in different regions of the country, they're coming out of the worst phase of the pandemic, they probably won't have enough interactions between infected people to actually test the vaccine. Yeah, that's right. The first stage is uh, the clinical stage is that the test of vaccine is safe to administer. Then the stage of human efficacy trials are are uh, done with a vaccinated and a control group. They are sent off to live their lives normally, potentially exposing them to the live virus in the wild, so so to speak. This is done this way out of ethical considerations. But uh, this is something that, based on what I just said about the UK slowly coming out of it, there's something that an American advocacy group called One Day Sooner tries to overcome. They, they try to accelerate the process by getting people directly infected with the virus. So So they're doing corona parties now? Yes, that's that's basically it, but with an injection. They published an open letter signed by 50 Nobel laureates and uh, 100 scientists, ethicists and philosophers. And they asked the National Institutes of Health of the United States to allow so-called challenge trials, where people are directly infected with the active virus to provide developers with a clearer picture within much shorter time, which is which makes sense in a way. But obviously, this calls for ethical debates, right? (laughs) Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in a way, I don't see how much worse it is. So I don't think it is that much worse than just letting people out in a seriously infected environment, because it's basically the same. But as opposed to getting infected by chance or not, you're definitely infected. Now, the problem is that it can have devastating effects on your body. And even if you're a young person, it's there's no guarantee that you will not get a serious illness out of it. So it's definitely something to debate. Even though a week ago, they stood at 30,000 volunteers from 140 countries for this to happen. So people are actually lining up to volunteer wow. to be infected with, with the virus directly. And interestingly, the WHO is not against this. But they felt the need to publish guidelines for all parties involved that outlined the key criteria that need to be met in order for such challenge studies to be ethically acceptable. So whether researchers will go through with it, and if so, with which vaccine developers will benefit from challenge trials is yet to be seen. But it is definitely something to look out for because this is a hot topic now. Yeah, really. In vaccine development. Adash, you mentioned... uh that there are hidden numbers. We don't know how many has died, etc. Yeah. There's a new report coming out of, from yeah, yeah. Spain where they have done a sort of a recount l- looking at things a little bit differently. And they they say that there are more than 16,000 COVID deaths in Spain alone that hasn't been counted before. Mm-hmm. And, and 2,000 of them are actually laboratory confirmed, but for some reason not included in the official numbers. And uh, the rest of them, 14,000, are deaths that are confirmed as COVID by the doctor, the physician involved, but there haven't been any tests, so they have been excluded so far. Uh, And also, as I've said before, retirement homes were not included and still is not, I think, in the official numbers in Spain. So retirement homes deaths, which have been very prominent in many countries, Uh, have not been counted everywhere, which means that you cannot compare official numbers from country to country because every, and I've said this before, so I know I'm banging on the same drum, but you cannot compare. And the difference, the reason I bring it up again is that there is a Swedish statistician 
called Don Hedlin. He's from Stockholm University and he's not part of the government. So don't, he's not a part of a cover up and he has no reason to make excuses for the official numbers. But he says that a lot of the comparisons that are going on between countries are totally meaningless because you cannot compare it and even questions where you should even summarize the average for for a country and he mentions just that I've said before as well if you look at Sweden Stockholm is a very very different thing from the south of Sweden where the excess deaths are actually lower yeah. than usual because of the the precautions that we have all been taking. So it's very, very questionable, he says, to try to compare uh, mortality rates between different countries. And I think even the infection rates are sometimes hard to compare because yeah. there's a lot of numbers that people never get tested, right. although they have symptoms or something like that. So yeah. yeah, that's even worse because it depends on how many people you test. For instance, I haven't been tested. Yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, most Swedes have either. not been tested, and most people have not been tested in the world. So, how can you say? Well, there are a certain number of confirmed cases, but that's just among the ones you've tested. This is why we are talking about estimates, especially when I talked about uh, how deadly it is. It is based on estimations, but those estimations are based on global numbers. But the global numbers are a combination of all those numbers with all those uncertainties. So it's difficult to actually assess. Because if we're looking at the case uh, mortality rate, then now we are standing globally, we are standing at around 4%. 4%. Mm. But the estimation is that it's probably about one-tenth of that or, or a bit, bit, bit more than one-tenth of that. Yeah. Uh, because with these estimations, they try to factor in the fact that in most of the countries, testing is really badly done or not done at all. Or, uh, for example, when it, uh, my country is compared to Germany, we see that, oh my God, we haven't had many cases, but we have over 15% of those registered cases ended up in death. So that is very high, but we haven't done very much testing, especially compared to Germany, where they tested like crazy from the get-go. Right. Yeah, they're even thinking of like providing people who are going on holidays mm -hmm. right now to providing them with tests that won't cost them any money, like voluntary tests, mm -hmm. because they think maybe if it's like for free, then maybe people will take the test and then quarantine themselves if they come back from yeah. from the holidays. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the other thing about the excess death, it's really hard to assess as well and to, to try to evaluate that. Because there are so many different factors. It's a multifactorial thing. For example, we definitely have seen a surge in the number of household accidents. Because a lot of people stayed at home. They decided to do some reparation of this and that, some, some, some building work. And yeah, a lot of men, statistically speaking, a lot of people who do that kind of work actually end up having an accident. So... Um, <laughs> So you can, you have to factor in all that as well. But this is why currently we cannot tell you what the actual excess death numbers are. No. It will have to be done retrospectively. Yeah, and, yeah. and apparently and the numbers for domestic abuse also went up. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. so it's like, yeah, it's, it's things you don't really think about at first if you hear of a pandemic, but it's like having circles and it's, it's going around and... Yeah. It has more impact than we think. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah, we said depressing things first out of the way, right? <laughs>
Yeah, this is uh, this is why I said that. Yeah, and, and I've got a better better news for you. You said besser. <laughs> besser. Yeah, besser. Sorry, that was a bit of German. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about a group now that speaks German and that's why I uh, totally sipped some German there <laughs> because um, the Science Busters from Austria are back mm -hmm. yeah. and they will have four events specially about Corona or COVID. <laughs> Corona is what we usually call it in Germany. So they are a group of scientists active in Austria, as I already said, um, who are doing exactly the marvelous job that we talked about last week. So they are doing science communication and they have been in TV and radio before and their goal is to entertain with science. And I personally met two of them already because Martin Moda and Florian Freistetter are also part of the GWUP. Ah, right. Are they? Yes. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> I met them at several Skepcons before. And yeah, they will have four events in August. And they will answer very interesting questions. For example, the very important question, if you can get infected through a fart of a COVID-positive person. <laughs> 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 so if the answer to that question interests you and you're from Austria, then you should definitely check these events out. <laughs> Don't try it out at home. Yes. <laughs> Listen to them first. <laughs> exactly. Don't fart. <laughs> All right. It looks like one uh, of the weirdest claims... Namely, that 5G causes coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2 specifically is here to stay, mm. unfortunately. So much so that a scientific journal published an article that bore the title 5G Technology and Induction of Coronavirus in Skin Cells. What? Well, at least this journal is listed by PubMed, which is supposed to be an indicator that it's generally approved. Well, just how scientifically sound that paper is. <laughs> this is clearly a question that... The editors at the Journal of Biological Regulators and Homeostatic Agents had failed to ask before publishing this article <laughs> that was listed as an editorial. So that's your first clue that it wasn't a paper that would list experimental data. And it didn't. I talk about it in past tense because the journal has withdrawn the paper, probably as a result of the backlash it generated within the scientific community. The researchers who wrote the paper were from different institutions based in Italy, Russia and the US. They claimed, without any experimental data to back up their claim, that, and I quote, 5G millimeter waves could be absorbed by dermatologic cells acting like antennas transferred to other cells and play the main role in producing coronaviruses in biological cells. End quote. Sounds legit. So skin cells are now antennas. That is what they're saying. Antennas. And those antennas are helping the skin cells generate coronaviruses out of fuck all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, sounds totally legit. Absolutely. All right. Maybe you should uh, have some facts to back that up. <laughs> That's a pretty bold claim. Exactly. And actually, this was only one of the weird statements in the paper. Wow. That is full of nice pictures, by the way. Fancy graphs and all that jazz, but no experimental data or other people's research behind those graphs. This is the effect, and this is the wavelength. That's it. What effect? What are you talking about? <laughs> what is, what is the data based on? It's just so funny. And uh, apart from the clear picture about the authors having a problem with 5G... There is no extra proof listed whatsoever in the paper. So clearly the best thing the editors could do was withdrawing it. However, it didn't happen fast enough. 5G conspiracy theorists around the world managed to pick it up 
including Alex Jones's Infowars. Wow. Is he still a thing, Alex Jones? He is still a thing, and Gee. you can imagine from there, it could not be stopped. Once Alex Jones and Infowars published it and ran with it, all the other crazy nut jobs around the world picked it up as well. I came across this on a Hungarian fake news site called Alternative News. It got 21,000 likes on Facebook where my mom saw it. <laughs> she sent it right over to me ah. instead of resharing it to her Facebook friends. Responsible. Something very good for which I am really proud of her. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Andres' mom. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And actually proud is something the researchers of this with Rome paper should not be. So some of them are, by the way, well known for their crappy papers, according to scientific investigator Elizabeth Bick, who called it the worst paper of 2020 on her blog. Ah, uh, okay. But just call forward. I have one more that will maybe challenge that title later on. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Elizabeth Bick also lists a couple of irregularities and curiosities about the journal itself that uh, further deepens the suspicion that about this whole fiasco that something is very fishy here. But the general public will not care and, and won't even know about the, those circumstances that I, I told you about. They just see some conspiracy theorist website or Facebook page that states the fact that it was published in a scientific journal. And then the damage is done. Yeah. So I wouldn't even know how to categorize this. Fake news? Pseudoscience? Bad science? Simply? But it doesn't even matter what I categorize it as. Publications like this have to be prevented somehow. Not dealt with after the fact. By the way, Retraction Watch keeps a log of retracted papers about COVID-19. This is the 26th of those so far. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> now that can lead to a lot of confusion. So uh, don't. Just don't yeah, do that. Right. All right. <laughs> Not the retraction, publishing shit. That's what you shouldn't do. Yeah, that's another call the forward place. there. I will talk more about retraction watch later on. Good, good, good. But first, I will <laughs> talk about another misleading set of claims that are circulating online mm -hmm. from the UK this time. We've talked about this before, about false letters from doctors, so-called doctors, regarding COVID-19 uh, being shared on social media. The latest example here comes from the UK. A so-called letter is being circulated uh, pretending to come from a, quote, doctor in Surrey, end quote. Oof. He calls himself a whistleblower and uh, the letter is full of statements about how all doctors agree secretly that there is no COVID pandemic, really, and that all medical doctors have been instructed to list deaths as COVID-related even if they're not, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, this is not surprising. We've seen this before, but it's really infuriating to see. And as you said, Dandras, if you get these things out there, it's almost impossible to undo the damage. Yeah. But some people are trying to do this uh, to set things right. And um, in this case, it's full fact who uh, continues to do the hard work of debunking statement uh, after statement online like this. And they have been pointing out all that's wrong with this letter and why it's probably not even written by a real doctor and, and, uh, and how they can come to that conclusion. So the message is, first of all, check things on Full Fact or similar websites before you share something, if you are in the least doubt. And the link to Full Fact, and if it's relevant, if you can, and support them financially, if that's a possibility for you. They're doing great work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and important work too. <laughs> mm. 
That's right. Yeah, and pretty much going along to the topics you talked about, I found a very interesting article where psychologist lists six rules of engagement with um, conspiracy believers. It was done by Joven Byford, and he said that like it's important because right now we also want to get like a, a good vaccination rate for COVID. And we can also all play our part in that, he said. And um, he gives six rules. And I won't go into like a lot of detail here, but I will name the six rules for you. They are one, acknowledge the scale of your task, because usually evidence is not enough. Like if you only present evidence, then you should be prepared that it's an uphill battle. <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> you should recognize that there is an emotional dimension to a belief in conspiracy myths or series. And conspiracy myths usually have good emotional stories. So it's like good against evil and the powerful against the powerless. And you don't want to enter a shouting match. You want to have a discussion. So you should ha keep in mind that it is emotional from the start. Then you should, three, find out what they actually believe in. Because for some, conspiracy uh, myths are the only truth. They believe in everyone, <laughs> everything. And others are sometimes just afraid or insecure And that's also why background research for us as skeptics is, is important. So what are the conspiracy myths actually claiming? Where do they come from? And um, yeah. what are they about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And the fourth um, rule is to find and establish common ground. Because it is said that in critical times like now, but also during wars and other crisis times, then not only um, tinfoil hat people, like the <laughs> classical people, and not only them are falling into that trap, but also <clears throat> the, the normal population can be contaminated and contaminated not by a virus in this case, but by a conspiracy theory or myth. The infodemic can reach them, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and because it's also that it can lure you into, because the reality maybe seems less chaotic. Mm -hmm. If you know that somebody is actually doing that and that all these people dying from COVID are dying because somebody had it on their agenda and it's not like a really shit virus accident, so to say, then it can maybe help you in your feelings in regards to that because right. maybe it helps you in a way. <laughs> yeah, at least you have an explanation. And yeah. because having no explanation can be really very scary. Yeah, exactly. We need a sense of agency yeah. Yes. Yeah. behind things that happen to us. Otherwise, we just yeah. feel lost. Yeah. We don't know what to make of the things that happen to us. Yeah, and you can always fight against a government, mm -hmm. but doesn't doesn't mean you always should. But <laughs> you can. But you can't fight against the virus except for doing the things that science tells you. Mm. So yeah, it gives you some agency back in a way. So that's why it's easy to fall into that in a crisis situation. But what you should do if you want to engage with somebody like that is that you acknowledge the broader concerns that underlie these things so that people are afraid about um, inequality or political transparency mm -hmm. or something like that. And the kernels of truth that can sometimes <laughs> be found in conspiracy myths can be a starting point for a reasonable discussion. But for that, you, of course, also have to know if there's any truth in that and if there's anything that, that can be reasonably talked about. The fifth rule is to challenge the facts, but to value the arguments. So you can offer to look at evidence together, but also maybe look at the value and the relevance of a specific conspiracy case. So is it important? What does it lead to if you believe in it? What doesn't it do? And the sixth one, of course, is be realistic. 
there are no foolproof strategies to deal with conspiracy believers. Converting somebody who's really into the rabbit hole is pretty impossible. <laughs> but maybe giving them some doubts can be done if you do it carefully. So what do you think about these tips? I mostly agree with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that it's rather hard to do it, uh, especially in the moment. You have to do a lot of research and then you're confronted with these conspiracy theories very quickly sometimes and you don't have time and you don't and keeping your temper it's about you know don't yeah. go emotional but it's very hard not to do that sometimes yeah. so it's mostly it's mostly knee-jerk reactions that we yeah. end up having yeah. to these arguments and these uh, idiotic ideas but we need to engage properly yeah it takes practice and understand the situation always yeah for example earlier you said uh, uh, something about um, uh, the experts uh, versus the, the politicians so the problem is that you cannot give enough voice to experts experts so it's the politicians who give voice to experts uh, and give a platform for the experts to voice their arguments and uh, their recommendations but if they are somehow linked to the government or they're linked to the politicians then it's gonna become an, a bit of a degradation of the trust that is placed in the experts as well so uh Somehow this is a difficult line that you have to walk. But it's very good to categorize the different things you need to do and to, to look through it scientifically. Mm -hmm. exactly. then, then if you can't live up to it in real life, at least you know what you should have done. Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Always way to improve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like I also find it like for some conspiracy myth, I'm just like, what? Like I go and it's so hard to <laughs> not ridicule it at times because... It's just like, I'm always like, how can you think something like that? But I think it's important, as it was said in the article, to keep in mind that there's a person there mm -hmm. on the other side and that you don't know if they believe in everything and if they also believe very anti-Semitic stuff because some conspiracy myths actually go back to anti-Semitism. But it could also be somebody who's just like really afraid and insecure. And if you ridicule them, you will just push them f in further. So yeah. that's something I, for example, always have to keep in mind that you have to be empathetic in that situation. Yeah, but you can only do that if you stop yourself from reacting yes, right away. Exactly. So you have to step back, think about it and then react. Yeah. And that's not easy. That's not always yeah. something that you can do because we are human. Some of us are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us are like people that are actually amphibians. Yes, so, that's right? true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> then, you, you know who. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of things that experts say and people don't believe. Um, there's another thing, another topic. On episode 227 and 228, we talked about how sensitive climate is to the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You remember that? I remember that. You're not here, Annika, but... Uh, yeah, but you... I listened to it. <laughs> so it, you probably remember. <laughs> but it looks like it has become the subject of an international debate among climate scientists uh, recently. But what's even worse, it has become the question most frequently referred to by climate change deniers. So climate sensitivity is a measure of elevation in global temperatures as a result of the doubling of carbon dioxide present in the atmosphere compared to pre-industrial levels. And it had been a matter of consensus for a while that a minimum of 1.5 and a maximum of 4.5 degrees is to be expected. But a recent paper has done a very thorough 
reassessment of that range in climate sensitivity. It was published in the journal Reviews of Geophysics by a team of researchers from 20 institutions from around the world, including the UK, France, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Sweden and Germany. So quite an international group. They use virtually all available data and relevant papers to work with a long line of paleoclimatic, historical and present-day evidence. They use sophisticated modelling as well and concluded that the probability of staying below a two-degree change is about 5%, so quite low. The baseline 5 to 95% probability range is between 2.3 and 4.7 Kelvin. Because in the paper they use Kelvin instead of Celsius, but uh, the reason for that is that in thermodynamics, uh, Kelvin is used, but it does not affect the interpretation of, of the temperature change estimates as the scale of the two are the same. Yeah, basically. so one degree oh. Kelvin is as much is as one a degree. Change, a one degree Kelvin change, a one, yes. yes. Only the reference points are different. So Yeah, um, you, you start with zero at different points. Yeah, zero mm. K is the absolute zero temperature, which equates to uh, minus 273 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. That's quite cold. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> since this is probably the most comprehensive study in the matter, we can be quite confident that the climate sensitivity to carbon dioxide is between 2.3 and 4.7 degrees. So this is a bit of an update on the previously accepted uh, scientific consensus. Very unlikely to be below 2 degrees or above 5.7 degrees. That is what we need to face within the next 80 years or so. Because the estimation is that the doubling of the, the level of carbon dioxide will be reached before the end of the century. So next time someone tries to argue that uncertainties render any action unnecessary or that there is not enough research to back up the usual statements about what the future holds, just show them this article (laughs) and you'll find it in our show notes. I think it's fascinating, especially because it's a multidisciplinary, really comprehensive work. So... When when I see something like this, this uh, I really feel like science is really the best tool in our hands mm. to try to estimate the risk mm. of things. Yeah, and it's like you sometimes uh, said before, it's like, I wish politics would be a bit more scientific at times mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in that regard. Yeah. Like Germany, for example, we will um, subsidize coal for another 10 years. So, so we will still do coal, although we still already have other ways to gain power so it's just like it's because that (laughs) silliness of wanting to get rid of nuclear power right away yeah without the necessary changes without the necessary new developments technological developments getting rid of nuclear because of the public being afraid of nuclear power yeah purely emotional reasons it's no other reasons whatsoever so right well safety things have to be concerned of course but with everything else so you have to be very cautious with how you handle it. And as long as you adhere to the rules, it should not be a problem. But the greatest problem with it is that it's very slowly adjustable. So you cannot just turn it off if you don't need that much energy. But uh, other than that... But it's like if you have a nuclear um, power plant, it's like it's a car and it's a very, very safe car. So yes, you can have an accident, but it's a very safe car. Yeah. And if you compare that to coal or like fossil energy, 
and the climate, then it's just like there will be a car crash. We know that. And it's already happening, but we see it in, in slow motion. And yes, I stole that metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's like, yes, there is one happening right now, but it, we only see it in slow motion. So That because you see it in slow motion, you, you don't have the sense of urgency and you don't, yeah. don't have that sense of danger. Exactly. Yeah. And, and if you want to know more about the nuclear situation and why we should use it more, you can actually check out our episode number 208 where we interviewed Ida Ruishalme. That's right. She was great. <laughs> it was fantastic and very interesting to listen to her. So if you have missed that episode, go back and check it out. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Speaking of science and of uh, climate change, we have uh, mentioned the Siberian heat wave before on episode 229, not that long ago. And that was from a report uh, by the EU Copernicus Climate Change Program. But now the UN has also presented its analysis and added that it's not just how the 38 degree Celsius temperature is causing release of methane, which accelerates the, the climate change. It's also how the heat wave is driving ice sheet uh, melting in the Arctic Ocean in an unprecedented way. The Secretary General from World Meteorological Organization, or the WMO, said in a statement, quote, the Arctic is heating more than twice as fast as the global average, impacting local populations and ecosystems and with global repercussions, end quote. And most clearly for all climate change deniers out there, they also pointed to a study by top climate scientists who found that, quote, such a rise in heat would have been nearly impossible without human-caused climate change, end quote. So it is us. We are the bad guys. Humans, stop doing that. Uh, so we've heard predictions, or I have heard predictions about Siberia for a long time. I mean, like 10, 15 years ago, saying how bad it would be if climate change really started to influence the, the weather there and how it would have global uh, influence. And now we see it's happening. And that's terrible. But it also shows just the power of science, the ability to predict the future from rigorous analysis. And we, the only thing we need to do is actually to start acting on such predictions instead of just making the predictions, mm -hmm. waiting and saying, oh, yes, that was right. We're screwed. Why don't do it a little bit earlier? It's like saying, oops, doesn't help you in no. the end. <laughs> no, right. No, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be alarmist, but you have to act. You have to figure out what the best course of action is and then do it. Yeah. It's the same with a pandemic. You don't have to be afraid. You just have to use your common sense and you have to use science. Yeah. It could be a little bit afraid, but but <laughs> but act on it early. That, that's Fear the thing. is not... Well, it's not a good driving force. I mean, it's a very strong driving force, but it's not a good one because it will it will mislead you. Yeah. And it will make you vulnerable to all kinds of manipulation. Yeah. Yeah, like if you're too afraid that you'd much rather buy into a BS than um, right. follow science. <laughs> right. Then you shouldn't be afraid. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, and I have to say, going back to our politics should be more a bit more scientific. Actually, there was a study that the Bavarian government ordered about homeopathy and this study got criticized by a comment in Ethik in der Medizin, which means um, ethics in medicine. Mm -hmm. It's a journal. And uh, the study wants to find out if less antibiotics can be used if you also take homeopathy at the same time. And in the comment, they say that's 
ethically problematic, of course, <laughs> because um, homeopathy doesn't work. Yeah. And hmm. they say it's it's very sad that the Bavarian government is pretty much supporting homeopathy with this study. Mm -hmm. Because why would you ask the question if you wouldn't support homeopathy in a way, yeah. you know? And they say it leads to patients taking home homeopathic remedies first and then often when it's already too late, they'll take effective medicine. And if you think about something like a, a sepsis, if you take sugar pills first, then that can be very life-threatening. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's why this study is like should be criticized. And that's why it's actually good that they criticize that. Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing that uh, they have a forum to criticize it on. Yes, exactly. They, mm -hmm. they chose the right forum. <laughs> they didn't use Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, normally Facebook would be good to criticize things like that because the public has to learn about that criticism as well. Yes. And the best way for the public to learn for about criticism is through media outlets. And uh, those Facebook pages that those media outlets uh, run. You probably recall that uh, I have always found the Hungarian news outlet Index a reliable secondary source of information. And I have in recent years definitely thought very highly of their professional standards, reporting style and, and competence. Not only about matters of science, but also regarding historical commemorative articles and even political reporting. So basically everything. Well, The latter, political reporting, is what led to their demise as a news outlet in Hungary. And I should really start a new segment now <laughs> with uh, the, the title Obsessively Opposing Orban or something. Oh, oh, oh. Why not? But it's not my fault that he keeps giving us a reason to bash him. So I also like the urbanization that Pontus Urbanization. <laughs> I don't like the urbanization. Not <laughs> <laughs> the joke. I don't like the urbanization either. Yeah, it was a good joke. <laughs> Anyhow, in Orban's crusade against all opposition in the country, he obviously needs to silence critical voices and a news outlet that holds everyone to the same, same standards and tends to spot and write about irregularities and questionable steps is of the utmost concern to him, of course. He has managed to hijack several TV and radio channels. Local papers all over the country are run by his associates. The previously leading online news outlet, Origo, and now Index. His recipe is the following. Take a henchman, someone you made a filthy rich oligarch using state-funded projects, and get them to buy into the company behind the news outlet. Then, slowly but surely, get a majority on the board and replace top-level staff then completely change the direction of the boat. And if someone doesn't like the, the new direction, let them jump ship. With previous buy-ins, it worked like a charm. People who could not stomach the changes left one by one over a period of several years. This, this is what happens to the previously mentioned news outlets. Now, with uh, Index, uh, something different has happened. So it's been going on for, for about two years, this slow buying in to the company. The guy who actually bought 50% of the stakes in the firm that controls Index's uh, advertising and revenue uh, was called Miklos Vasily, and he's a pro-Orban businessman. And then he slowly started to gain more ground. And finally, when uh, the editor-in-chief, uh, Saborj Dul, uh, started complaining about the pressure coming from the board, it became public that it was happening. Then uh, last week, 
he got fired. Mm. And right after he got fired, the journalists at the, the news outlet decided to stand up and walk. 70, or actually more than 70, almost 80 of them, decided to stand up and leave the company right away. Wow. And from the political point of view, this is just another example of how Orban tries to kill all news outlets critical of him. And now it has already happened what was expected to happen, that they started to run news and opinion pieces as well that they borrowed from other news outlets already controlled by the Orban ah. oligarchs. So it's really a tragic thing. But I find the behavior of the index journalists a very uplifting and an elevating one. Actually, it brought me to tears to see that happen. It was uh, all over the, the, the not state-controlled media, yeah. which is massively shrinking. Th these 70-odd uh, journalists, are they able to create a new news out uh, outlet, a, a new paper or a new online thing? Yeah, this is what most of us expect to happen yeah because so we are waiting for the for the signal that okay guys we've done it and this is what we need the money to pour in yeah in order for us to survive i hope they did that i really hope they do that because it's really a massive step towards killing all the media that criticizes Orban's regime. And it's not all about that. Obviously, that is what he found objectable in their work. But uh, to me, this was really um, a very important source of secondary information. And it's a great loss for me hmm. to see them go. But the problem is, and this is why Orban's recipe usually works and uh, wins all these uh, battles against free press, is because there are always a lot of people who will, just out of habit, stay around and keep reading the articles published by Index. Yeah, because you usually do that. Because the name stays, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Right. So they will not lose 100% of their readership. Huh. And uh, that is a bit of a concern, because that means that a little bit more people will be controlled by them through the media. Yeah, and it's also, if you think about the journalists, it's like not everybody can do that like getting up and leave, losing their job essentially or like at the same time living in a re regime and then maybe endangering your life even maybe you don't know so i can as a german with with a bit of a background in that regard i can understand that like these journalists did such a marvelous thing because yeah. they were also an, under a lot of pressure there yeah and with previous um, buy-ins it, it really happened that some people stayed around for for financial reasons, because it was a matter of living their lives and getting their income. And they stom they managed to stomach the changes and that, yeah, now I'm being told to speak very highly of the prime minister of some, some of the project that he did, even though I feel like it's, it's crap, it's basically bullshit. But here they decided they will not go down that road. Right. So totally different uh, topic now about 15 years ago, we and my family went by car through parts of England uh, on a vacation. My twin daughters at the time were about 10 years old. And one thing that they reacted to, and we all did actually, was how big most people were. Uh, really fat or obese and in general. Uh, and I, I mean, people are different. Some are thin and so others are larger. That's just how it is. But the contrast was big. 
between Sweden, where we came from, and, and coming to the UK, it's so big that my children started to, you know, point fingers and said, oh, please don't do that. That's not, that's not, that's don't not that. polite. <laughs> please don't do that. So, Be a nice person. Right. So, so, but we all have the problem that, that the calories are, are cheap and too easily available. But uh, England was different. And this was, as I said, 15 years ago already. And I read now that on average, Britons daily eat 200 to 300 calories more than recommended on average. And it has become a point of discussion in the UK. And the reason I bring it up is that the government there is planning now to maybe introduce different rules. And they're talking about uh, how to target junk food ads and uh, start to be better at calorie labeling. So calorie labeling is actually something that I'm, I think in your countries as well, it's pretty common, right? You can see mm -hmm. on the package how many calories. Yes. But in the UK, it seems to be, and I may get this wrong, but it seems to be optional, the calorie part you, you have to declare what's in the product but calories are optional even though it's very common but the new rules that are being discussed and i don't think it's 100 decided yet uh, could make it mandatory not just on prepared foods but also in restaurants at least the bigger chains the bigger restaurant chains uh, and the changes to the ad rules would target junk food and i, I don't know how they define junk food they will have to come up with some sort of general rules for what is junk and what is not. We all know what we mean when we say junk food, but you have to define it legally. It's different. Uh, so the ban was first said to be planned for TV ads before 9 p.m. So, so no uh, hamburgers in the TV ads before 9 p.m., I think. It's probably to avoid uh, the ads being seen by children, right? Right, mm. yes. And also maybe that the later it is, the less chance there is that you go out and actually buy something. Probably. Because yeah. you're tired and you're already there in front of the telly or whatever. And they don't do delivery usually. No, no, exactly. <laughs> they're also considering a total ban for junk food. Uh, and they're also discussing online ads, uh, not just TV. Uh, and apparently this idea has been around for several years, but Boris Johnson has uh, been against it before. But now, after his health scare with COVID-19, <laughs> he has become a new person, at least a, a lighter person, because he says that he has lost about one stone after his COVID-19 encounter. And I had to look that up. Now, uh, a stone, how much is that? It's actually 6.35 kilos. So it's quite a lot if you lose that. Well, not necessarily if you're that big a man. It depends on like how much you weigh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a quite a heavy built guy. How much so... percentage of your body? Yeah. That is. <laughs> exactly. Percentages would be more interesting. <laughs> But my question is to you, and I, I, I'm very, I don't know about this. Will the, would this be effective if they go through with these rules? And is it worth it? What do you think? Well, it really depends. It has so many layers, I would say, because the question would be like, are there alternatives, for example, for the people that are watching this ad? Like, are there alternatives that they know of? So, of course, yeah, there are supermarkets where they can buy um, better food. Yeah, sure. But are the supermarkets as accessible as the junk food restaurants, yeah. <laughs> for example? Yeah. What about the financial background? So... Yeah, I think it, it probably can help if you're making the decision consciously to eat junk food, so to say. Mm. But if you don't know about any alternatives, then it might just not help. <laughs> right. Well, in the UK, 
I only know that because I lived for a while in the UK and I actually worked at um, McDonald's. <laughs> okay. So that is considered one of the cheapest options if you want to eat out. That, for example, in my country, people love going to McDonald's and Burger King and all those, but it's not really cheap. Mm. Whereas in the UK, it is. So you can get a whole meal for about uh, the same price as a large cappuccino and a biscuit in a cafeteria. So it's really cheap. Now, that is one of the problems. The other problems with it, and I think it should not be dealt with uh, by, by bands. It's more like um, information and it's it should be like educational campaigns instead. Mm. So yes. be aware of what it entails. Yeah. Be aware of what it does to in the environment, for example. All the beef that you eat, what it does to the environment. My other, other problem with junk food is that it is being held up as this monstrous, awful, absolutely terrible nutrition-wise kind of choice when you want to eat it's not really it's not bad in terms of nutrition what it is is it's very energy dense you eat all these you take in a lot of energy for example with a whole meal you can eat as much as you need for a whole day yeah with a lunch meal yeah it's like a two-thirds or like even 100 of what you need in a day but it won't keep you full that long so yes but nutrition wise it's almost okay so that is a criticism that is not really substantiated by strong evidence that uh, it's it's not good for you and it's unhealthy. It's not unhealthy in itself. It's unhealthy if you only eat that. Yeah. And this is why supersize me was a terrible mistake, I think. Mm. Yeah, but it would be like unhealthy with anything if you just eat that. Exactly. And the other thing is that you get hungry after a while, even having eaten uh, a whole meal couple of hours you'll you'll get hungry again you will eat again and then you will massively exceed your calorie intake <laughs> yeah. recommended for a day so that's one problem the other thing is why i consider it junk is with all the rubbish that you generate with it yes so that is a lot of stuff mm. that ends up in the rubbish bin yeah and i know for a fact that it's it goes into the rubbish bin it's it doesn't go into selective waste no. or recycling bin no, it goes to the rubbish, everything. And uh, even though most of it is recyclable in theory, and it's even written on the side of it that it's recyclable, but it doesn't get recycled. Uh, it isn't recyclable if you don't recycle it. So, yeah. yeah. But, but the reason I bring this up here is that I think it is, it, or my skeptical radar goes up because it seems like too simple a solution to a very yes. complex problem. Yeah, banning uh, is, is just... Yeah, but banning <laughs> advertising. Is that really why people are eating hamburgers? Is it because they see the constant ads? Yeah, it's like the ads are not the problem. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And then it turns the way, it shifts it to... It's on on the personal responsibility. And, and you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's very easily becomes fat shaming and, and things like that. And I don't think they've done any science behind that. It's this idea, these ideas. It's just, again, it's a political solution quote unquote to a problem that should be analyzed much uh, deeper than that but I, I i don't pretend to, to know the answer but i i just feel that it's add some kind of a tax to it like a health tax or something you mean like on the cigarettes <laughs> yeah but even so do the science first and and find out if the tax will work yeah and how much it should how high it should be 
And, and you know, don't just guess and throw solutions out of thin air into the problem. Yeah, and even with the text, with the text or something, you should really be careful to then not like discriminate the people that are already discriminated against. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it there has to be. It's so complex, and and you just really have to do your research and do your science there, and yeah. and then then like develop a political agenda out of that, yeah. and not do like the political thing first. <laughs> and it's also in a way a rich man's problem, since you you mentioned Anders how how cheap it can be, at least in the UK and in other places. Some people don't can't afford to eat healthily. Yeah. And maybe then you need to look at that. Why is that? And how can you get around that problem? And and that way the tax won't work either. Because no. You're just... no. Yeah, you will just discriminate those yeah, again. Exactly. So... exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I think with something like food and ads, you also have to be careful to... Because like there can also be eating disorders, for example, mm-hmm. right. that you also have to keep in mind for that. If you ban these ads or if you like put a text in there that is also on, in Germany, it's on the cigarette boxes. Yeah. There's like this is dangerous, blah, blah, blah. Which doesn't work. Yeah, but like it, A, it doesn't work. But B, it could also trigger things with somebody who has an eating disorder. Like, mm. yeah. So it's just like yeah. you, you really, right. really have to do your science in, in that regard because it's so complex. Yeah. As a closing comment on this, I wouldn't trust Boris Johnson co- to come up with a perfect solution <laughs> to this yeah. issue. So uh, that's why I distrust it, yes. among other things. Yeah. Yeah. And he definitely hasn't done his science. No. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the end of our news segment, which means that we're moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. So today we have already mentioned homeopathy and we have uh, mentioned dodgy scientific papers. And here comes a, a, a new topic which uh, encapsulates both those things. Uh, we, I'm going to talk about a peer-reviewed paper by three researchers described by another source as, quote, a couple of engineers and a dentist, end quote. They have managed to get a paper approved <laughs> <laughs> that claims to use maths to prove that homeopathy works against COVID-19. So first I have, we have to do the mandatory description of what homeopathy is, the short version, I hope. It is based on the principle... BS. It's B- yeah, that's the really short version. <laughs> uh, but homeopathy is based on the principle that like cures like, and that is that something that causes a symptom can cure the same symptom, regardless of why the patient is sick in the first place. So if you suffer from insomnia, then caffeine would be a good source for the cure. And this works if the substance, the caffeine in this example, is repeatedly diluted, you know, in absurdum, uh, even beyond the limit when no caffeine is to be found in the, in the resulting product. And the more you dilute, the better. And the trick is uh, that you do this through succussion or shaking the dilution. And that makes the uh, the vibrations of the substance to get imprinted in the water, and the water somehow magically remembers this. Blah 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 blah. That's that's the short of it. I'm sure there are homeopaths out there that thinks this is misrepresenting the whole thing. But anyway, it is clearly nonsense. Funnily enough, this paper that I'm talking about seems just as diluted from facts as homeopathy is from its original product. 
It first states that, as a fact, it states that the principles of homeopathy work, as if that's a given, right? Then it sets up a series of mathematical formulas based on that fact, and uh, the fact that like cures like. One commenter on this paper summarized the formulas uh, like this, quote, the medicine is to a healthy person what the disease is to the patient, end quote. So what's, what the hell does that mean? Well, <laughs> if the disease causes a person to be sick and if homeopathy cures a disease, then homeopathy causes the person to be healthy. It's it's just a circular reasoning that doesn't prove anything. It's like the old saying, it's so stupid that it's not even wrong because none of it proves anything. The only relevance also to COVID-19 in the article, which is in the header of this peer-reviewed article, is that COVID presents much of the same symptoms as pneumonia and other respiratory illnesses. But there's no proofs in the paper or elsewhere that um, those could be cured by homeopathy anyway. So needless to say, the paper has received quite some uh, criticism. <laughs> and amazingly, one of the authors tried to counter one critical comment by saying that the guy had not understood anything from the paper. And he ended with this phrase, quote, Dear friend, you must prove capital letters, line to line, that this paper is not scientific. Otherwise, you are a slanderer. Did you understand? Question mark, end quote. Oh. So, regardless <laughs> of the actual claims of the paper. Yeah, shouting loud. That is what makes you right. Yeah, what is wrong <laughs> with that arguing? You must prove line by line that this paper is not scientific. What, what, how, what, why is that wrong? Because you can't prove a negative. <laughs> exactly, you can't prove a negative. It's not just that. The burden of proof is being shifted to right. the one criticizing the nonsense. It's not up to us to prove that they are wrong. <laughs> they have to prove that they are right, right? Mm. So it's, it's also a bit of an ad hominem with this. Do you Did you understand? You did not understand anything in this paper, blah, blah, blah. If you didn't get it, then you're then stupid. if you don't believe it, then you didn't understand then it. Then <laughs> you're stupid. I'm not stupid. You're stupid. Ed Sutterst, of course, our hero and, and uh, great... Uh, Idol uh, also criticized this paper. Of course, he picked it up because it's about homeopathy and that's his specialty. And he put this very clearly uh, and he said, quote, If there were a competition for the craziest paper published on so-called alternative medicine scam uh, during 2020, this one would, I'm sure, win by some margin. The author seems to have little idea of the nature of evidence in healthcare in medicine. And they use mathematics like a drunken man uses a lamppost. Not for enlightenment, <laughs> but for support. End quote. <laughs> that is good. That is perfect. Yeah. But the craziest thing is not that uh, a couple of engineers and a dentist have uh, wacky ideas. Such people will always be around. The scary thing is that it got past peer review and it got published. Retraction Watch, which we also mentioned earlier today, mm -hmm. uh, they contacted the paper and basically said, <clears throat> well, perhaps you may want to retract this. <laughs> Normally, they only report on what has already been retracted, but they actually contacted and said, maybe, you, you, maybe you'd want to look at this one more time. And uh, in breaking news today, as we record this, the editor actually came back to Retraction Watch and uh, apologized, blaming the publication on an, quote, 
overflow of manuscripts and quote obviously biased end quote reviewers so they say uh, they are now in discussions about retracting the article i don't know what they're discussing really it's just retract the bloody thing yeah and make it the 27th yeah 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 <laughs> and the, the same author who, who came back with a shouting earlier he came back to this as well uh, or to retraction watch and said uh, that established medicine always failed to understand the benefits with homeopathy anyway so this is what he expected and he has much more proof uh, of how effective it is However, this is research in progress, so he cannot share it at this point. What a pity. What a pity. Uh, so I put a lot of blame on the authors of the article, but the big thing is really how did this get published in a peer-reviewed uh, paper? So my really wrong award for totally failing uh, its peer-review protocols and publishing nonsense, the Journal of Public Health... From Theory to Practice, that's the name of the journal, they get today's prize for being really wrong. Another well-deserved yes. prize. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. And that means that we are at the end of the show. But before we leave, I'd like to share a quote with you. And this quote comes from Sir Karl Raimund Popper, ah. Austrian-British philosopher of science, uh, who introduced the general principle of the need for falsifiability of scientific theories, which is a great help to present-day science. And the quote is, Whenever a theory appears to you as the only possible one, take this as a sign that you have neither understood the theory nor the problem which it was intended to solve. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that is the end of our show. But another thing that I'd like to talk about before we leave, and that is that if all goes well, uh, my company decided that uh, we would go to the Baltic States for a tour. All of that us? Is... The three of us? No, no, no. no. Unfortunately not. <laughs> just oh, okay. me. Just oh. me. As a, t as a tour guide, actually. Okay. Oh, uh, it was quite a challenge. I did this uh, one-day tour to Pech, uh, one of my favorite cities here in Hungary. But it was one day, and it was not easy to adhere to all the rules regarding the COVID-19 precautions. But for 10 days, it will be even more of a challenge. But I'm up to it. However, that means that uh, I will go through Poland then travel to Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Well, Bialystok, that will be the first stop. Uh, the next stop will be Riga in Latvia. I will be in Tartu, which is uh, a lovely little uh, university town in uh, Estonia. Mm -hmm. Then Tallinn, and after that, unites in Vilnius. So if someone from those countries listening to the show would like to meet up with me, I would be very happy to set aside some time at one of the evenings and uh, and meet them. So please get in touch with me, uh, Andras at theesp.eu, or you can write us on uh, one of the other channels that will be listed on the outro. So yeah, please get in touch. I would be very happy to meet up with uh, skeptics from either Poland, Estonia, Latvia or Lithuania. You lucky bastard to get to travel during these times. Yes, well, 
It's still not 100% sure that this tour will get the green light up until the last day. So until I'm on the road, I cannot be sure that it's actually happening. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, we, we hope. Wash your hands. Yeah. I will. I will be washing my hands. I will be wearing <laughs> masks all the time while I'm speaking. So got my gloves as well. So pff, it's going to be quite a challenge. So I'd like to thank both of you, Anika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis bald. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe I'd like to polish my Italian. Polish my Italian. <laughs> and... <laughs> But you were too hungry for that, right? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had to check to eat some food. Oi, 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 oi. This will be a long night. Okay. <laughs> I need to wait until freaking dogs are... Up. Just a sec. We haven't had this, this problem before. We used to we used to have uh, Jelena's cat <laughs> coming along. Well, I've got a Scotty running around here somewhere, oh, but he can also behave himself. You, you <laughs> full of puns today. <laughs> today it will be only outtakes by Annika. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like one hour of outtakes. Have fun. You're welcome. <laughs> We can have a farting episode. <laughs> you can come here and... Just about farts. Yeah. Yeah. Very articulate ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that it can be understood. <laughs> Different languages. I fart in your general direction. Yes. Isn't that a Monty Python quote, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>